Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, grab them. We're going to be in Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, then uh, there should be one in the seat back in front of you. That is our gift to you. Um, If you just want a a paperback one, you can have that one. If you'd like a leather-bound one, then check our Lost and Found. And uh, anything you want, man. Uh, With somebody else's name in it, it's fine. It don't matter. Hey, uh. So glad that you are here. If you if you are a guest with us today, we sure do hope you feel at home here. Hope you feel welcome. Um, we are in a brand new series called the Master Plan, and uh, we'll be talking about that for the next four weeks. But I wanted to catch you up on the series we just came out of. We came out of a series called Restore, and we have this Restore project going on on June the second, the day that we baptized a few hundred people. We also uh, laid out for the church that God is calling us to do what Amos prophesied in Amos chapter nine that God would rebuild as he continues to restore, and we're going to rebuild the, the back 25,000 square feet of this old Walmart as God continues to restore men and women and children unto himself. And so in order to do that, we got to raise about $2.4 million, and we laid out that challenge. Um, the folks that, that kind of came before you that were a part of 1122 when we were a service at Beach, there's about 500 families uh, that joined in a campaign there called Upon This Rock and raised um, for they raised six million dollars between us and Beach United Methodist Church, but uh, about four million dollars of that was spent here, and about five million dollars that was raised by families that are here. So to all the upon this rock people, we just said thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, since then, there's been about a three thousand additional people that have joined our church, and so to all the new three thousand people, we wanted you to get on board and raise two point four million dollars. Seems easy enough, right? Don't look nervous. Everybody looks so nervous. Uh, well, here's where we are. In three weeks, we have 162 commitments. I need that 162 to get to 500 in the next few weeks, okay? So I know that some of you just, you've been praying about it, but you had not filled out your commitment card, and I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt right now. So you'll just go ahead and fill that out and then drop that off in the giving boxes around the sides or in one of these buckets. So that's 162 families have committed. Uh, right now, we've taken in about $320,000. And we're going to need to jump that up to about $2.4 million in the next few weeks. Cool? And then that was the, that's me just assuming that you just hadn't turned in your card yet. If, and then we'll bring the hammer in the next few weeks if it doesn't go like we think it needs to go. All right? You ready to move on to the Bible study portion? Act 16. Here we go. We are starting a brand new series called Master Plan. And I want to ask you a couple questions as we get started. Uh, at what age did you realize you were not in control? You remember that realization? Oh, wait a minute. Uh, Maybe I'm not the master of the universe. Maybe my plan isn't always the plan. For me, it began to uh, come about about in the ninth grade when I sat my dad down and said, Daddy, I I need some advice. I need some real advice that's going to really propel me in one of two directions for the rest of my life. And I need you to tell me, do you think I should be a professional baseball player or a professional football player? Because I've got a decision to make. Well, it turns out that wasn't the plan. Um, or it, it, maybe it, go, it went this way for you. When did you realize that your plan wasn't working? I mean, you mapped out this great plan for you, and then it, you start working the plan, and either one, it was a dumb plan, and the plan, the whole thing fell apart, or you achieved everything in the plan that you wanted, and then when you got to the end of, the, of it, you thought, well, dang, I must have had some pretty crappy goals because I achieved all the goals, but there's still something missing. What we'll talk about for the next four weeks is the master plan, that there is a master and you're not him. And he does have a plan for your life. So Acts Acts 16, verse 1, Paul. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman, 
who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. <clears throat> Verse 2. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. So you remember last week we said that, that, that when Paul and Barnabas decided to part ways, that they created a leadership vacuum in their ministries. And so they were able to raise up some new leadership. And so this Timothy kid, this guy is the, the new leader that Paul has identified. Bless you. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Do what? So imagine this conversation. When I read this, you know what? I can't help but think, what kind of leader must Paul have been? So Paul goes to Timothy, a grown man, a young man, but a grown man, and he says, hey, Timothy, I got some good news. What's that, Paul? God has a plan for your life. Come on, Paul, preach it, brother. Yeah, you are respected in this community. Come on, keep going. You, you have influence in this society. The, the brothers in the church talk about you are a leader, and God's called me to plant churches all over the known region, and I think you are the man to go with me. And Timothy's like, amen, preach it, brother. I'm with you, man. I am with you. And Paul's going, listen, it's going to be cool. We're going to travel Timothy's like, I love to travel. We're going to meet new people. I love new people. See new places. I love new places. couple problems. Uh, everywhere we go, they're going to try to kill us. Well, that's a bummer. And there's this surgery that you're going to have to go through. <laughs> and you're going to do it? Okay. So, and he still signs up anyway. What a phenomenal leader. And so he takes him and he circumcises. Why, why, why? You know what they're about to do? They're about to take this letter to all the churches. And you know what the letter says? The letter says that you don't have to be circumcised if you're a Gentile to be a Christian. So if I'm Timothy, I'm going to go, um, excuse me, Paul, <laughs> I object, and I would like to offer up to the court, Exhibit A, the letter that you are carrying in your hand. I don't think I have to go through with this. But for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of not being a stumbling block to anybody else that they would minister to, he decides to go through it anyway. Verse 4, and as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered... To them for observance, the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. And that decision was that it was not by works that we are saved, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 5. I love this verse. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Notice that word, and. If you're brave enough to write in your Bible, circle the word, and. That we want to be an and kind of church. Like I was told coming up in ministry that you had to be an either or. I mean, some of my favorite preachers around would tell me, <clears throat> you've either, you've either got to uh, decide if you're going to keep people or reach people. And it was an either or. But right here in the scriptures, it said it was an and kind of church, that they were strengthened in faith and they increased in numbers daily. That's why the vision of the church of 1122 is that we are a movement for all people to deepen and discover a relationship with Jesus Christ, that we believe that God can do both here. That's why we go verse by verse through the Bible so that you could be um, the kind of person that has had faith for even a long time. You knew, you've known Jesus for a long time. You surrendered your life to him a long time ago. You're a Bible nerd. You dig into the scriptures. You can't wait to show up here and open up the text and have the, the word of God preached and the spirit of God stirring you and your faith strengthened and just to see just a new piece of the glory of God and bask in his manifest presence. It's why we sing the way we sing. If some of you are new to church and you come in and you go, that's kind of weird. It'd be kind of weird if you just showed up on a date with me and my wife and I was singing a love song to her, right? You'd be like, this is weird. But you would know, man, he really loves her. The reason we sing and do worship the way we do worship is because we really love him. 
Because he first loves us, and so we love him back by singing to him. And so if you were standing next to a guy, and he was crying, and he had his arms up, and you're like, wow, I've never been to church like that. It's because it's not just a belief system. That dude is being strengthened in his faith in that moment. And we, it, the, the numbers are added to daily, obviously. Look around, okay? But we also believe that we can create the kind of environment where you can show up and have no church background, or you used to have a church background, or you got a bad church background, and you don't even, you've never really even opened the Bible before. You're not even sure if you believe in God. And yet we can explain things and we can do things in such a way that there's not insider vocabulary, that you are welcomed in this place. And for the very first time, you might, you might discover that God is actually for you and not against you. That he loves you. That he's your heavenly father. And he's not out to get you, but he's kind of out to get you. And that's a different kind of get. And we believe that we want to be the kind of church that's described right here where faith is strengthened and they increase in numbers daily. Amen? Amen. All right, verse 6. We're going to spend the rest of our time on these next four verses. And they went through the region of Ferga. I think that's where uh, the Black Eyed Peas came from, right? Pretty sure. And so they went through that region and Galatia. Now, this is crazy. Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now, if you take the Bible seriously, don't you read through a verse like that and go, do what? What do you mean the Holy Spirit is forbidding Paul and, uh, and Silas, that he's with them, and Timothy to preach the word in Asia? Well, God, that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any Why would you forbid them to do uh, the Great Commission and to take the word of God to Asia. That seems crazy. Uh, Lord, in fact, if you look, God, if you'll turn to the maps in the back of your Bible, Lord, you will see that, that if, as they're on their missionary journey, and if you have one, a high-end Bible like I do, leather-bound, you know, you probably have some maps in the back. And if you see when they, they went through Cilicia and the Derby and the Iconium, and then, and then now they're in Fergie, and, and that's like right next door to Asia. So everybody can see that it makes sense that you should just keep trucking through Asia. It's a part of their strategy. It's a part of their five-year plan to spread the gospel all over the place. And the Bible would have us want to think that God is telling them, no, I'm not letting you go to Asia. And so if if you look at the map, they're going to go up and around Asia, verse 7. And when they came, when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So if you look in your map, Asia's to the left when you get up around the top there, and to the right is Bithynia. And so Paul's like, okay, if we can't go left and preach the word, then we'll go right and we'll preach here in Bithynia. And the Bible says, in the spirit of Jesus went, no, sorry, there's no room in the inn. Get out of Bithynia. We don't want you in here. And can you imagine, well, I can imagine if I'm in Paul's crew, I don't understand what's going on. I'm like, Lord, I, I don't think you heard my prayer requests clearly, okay? I'm just trying to do this for you. I'm just trying to preach your word to Asia or Bithynia. I don't even care. You can pick, all right? I'll let you pick amongst my prayer requests, but you need to get on board with what I'm saying here. And in fact, Lord, if you'll listen to me, I've got it all figured out. In fact, I think if you say yes to my prayer request at the end, you'll come back around and you'll be thanking me for this great idea. So what do you do when God says no to you? Because aren't there times in our life where the thing we're praying for actually becomes bigger and more important than the one we're praying to. And it's a Christian version of idolatry. You better watch out. 
Because you could even be praying for the good, for something good. Because Paul's not praying for like a nicer camel or a sweeter tunic or some sweet sandals, all right? He's not praying like, Lord, give me, give me, give me. Let me name it and claim it and expand my territory. He's not praying for him. He's praying to take the word of God to Asia. And God says, uh-uh. Okay, how about Bithynia? No. Spirit of Jesus says, no. I guess through circumstances or spoke to his heart. I don't know exactly how he did it, but he says, no. And if we are not careful, what we can do is just a Christian version of idolatry. When we take even good things, even even good things, and make them God things, and that makes it a bad thing. We take temporary things of this world and treat it as if it is ultimate, like our family and our career or safety and health, whatever it is. And then what can begin to happen is we can actually begin to prostitute God. Say, all right, God, I'll pay you off. I'll say my prayers. I'll do my quiet time. I'll show up to church. And then you owe me this thing. And then when I'm done paying you off and I get what I want from you, I'll discard you. And it's just idolatry. The only thing we've done is we've changed. We've, we've substituted some of the idols from this world to some kind of churchy kind of idols. And so what do you do when God says no? Because God tells Paul, no to Asia and no to Bithynia. So what does he do? Verse 8. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. Now, if, I know you guys all know your Asian first century geography, but if you look on your maps in the back of your Bibles, Troas is not a short little hop, skip, and a jump. They can't just like catch the charter bus over to Troas. It's 400 miles around Asia that they walk to get to this place called Troas. And what does Paul do? Paul does exactly what God tells him to do. So many times I have people ask me, especially young people in their 20s, hey, I'm trying to figure out what God's will is for my life. God's will for your life is to do exactly what Jesus tells you to do. Y'all should write that down. That's good advice, all right? God's will for your life. If you just do what God tells you to do, then you'll always be right. So they end up in Troas. He is obedient. Even though he wanted to go to Asia, he wanted to go to Bithynia. God says, nope. You're going to Troas. They passed by city after city, opportunity after opportunity to get to where God had called them. Verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. Notice something. The vision comes after obedience. It was obedience first, vision second. You can't get those two mixed up. He was obedient to even the small things that God had called him to do. Don't go here, don't go there, go to Troas. And in his obedience, as he walked in the things that he knew God had called him to do, then God begins to give him a specific vision and a specific calling. Because of the success of our church, there have been young church planners that call me and say, hey, can, can we hang out? I'm sure we can hang out. Wow, whatever we can do to help you and your church plant, we'd love to. And what they'll tell me is, I want to do what you do. Okay. And, you know, like 20 years old. I want to do exactly what you're doing. Well, you, well let's, then it's like a 20-year journey, okay? Let's back up 20 years because I started in ministry when I was 20. And so this is my 20th year in ministry. And so I know you think this whole 1122 ministry thing just kind of happened out of nowhere. And it did. It, you know, our church just sort of blew up. But I've tried to be faithful in the small things my whole ministry. There's so many things in ministry that I've screwed up. I mean, we could do a whole series on that. But one of the things that was really important to me, and and, and God just kind of did it in my heart, is whatever the thing was he had right in front of me was just the most important thing for me in that moment because I was just obedient to what God had called me to do. When God called me to go into ministry, my first youth pastor job was at Mount Olivet Baptist Church almost 20 years ago. And I walked into my first youth group, and there were three students, three 
We literally met in a broom closet. And when I walked in, I wasn't thinking in that moment, well, God, what's this all about? One day I'm going to run a mega church. No way. All I could think about is, oh, okay, Lord, I'm going to disciple these three. I'm going to disciple these three. And we, we cracked open the Bible that very first time in that little broom closet. And we started to walk through the scriptures. We went through the Gospel of John, just verse by verse. And then the next week, there were six. And when six people were there that next week, I was like, son, six. Are you kidding me? That's 100% growth. I don't know a pastor in the world. It's doubles in a week, but we did in my ministry. And those six were the most important six in my world. And by the summer, we were to 12, and we all got into a church bus, little van thing, and we went to camp, and I thought, it just doesn't get any better than this. God, I'll give my life for those 12, just to raise up those 12. And as I was just obedient in whatever God had in front of me, that's when visions for other things begin to, to come in. And of those, 12, those first 12 students that I pastored, eight of them are now in full-time ministry, right? So was that a waste of time? Are you kidding me? Absolutely not. So if you want to know what God's vision for your life is, let me tell you, you be obedient into what he has right in front of you. Students, you want to know what God's vision for you is? How about honor your father and mother? That's a part of it. You start there. Husbands, you want to know what God's vision for you is? Love your wife like Christ loved the church. Wives, you want to know what grand scheme the Lord has for you? Submit your husband as unto the Lord. You want me to keep going? We could go through every one of us in here. You show yourself faithful in those arenas, and then the vision comes, and here comes the vision. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately, notice he didn't waste any time, because obedience begets obedience. When you're walking in obedience and then God instructs you, then you just continue walking in that obedience. And so immediately we sought to go to Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. There's a ton there in that last little chunk of scripture, that last verse. First of all, notice there's two words that just, you know, if you're a Bible nerd, all all the lights on your dashboard ought to be going off. There's two little words that get used for the first time in the text. Do you notice what they are? We And us. What does that mean? That means that Luke, the writer of Acts, is now a part of the crew. And if Paul would have taken the gospel into Asia, guess who's not in Asia? Luke is not in Asia. And so if Paul just kind of does his own ministry and invites God to come on with him as opposed to being obedient to what God had called him to do, he didn't get hooked up with Luke. And I guess the book of Acts ends in chapter 15. Because the first 15 chapters of, of Acts... Luke is interviewing people, and he's telling us about what he has investigated that's happened. But from 16 on, now he is a part of the journey. And so from chapter 16 through chapter 28, Luke is with them. That's a big deal. Another thing that's a big deal is what happens in Macedonia. If you are familiar with your scriptures, maybe you've heard of First and Second Thessalonians. That happens in Macedonia. Maybe you've heard of First and Second Corinthians. That happens in Macedonia. Maybe you've heard of the book of Philippians. That happens in Macedonia. That what God had in store for Paul, he thought he was supposed to go to Asia. Little did he know, God had Asia covered. And God needed to say no to Asia and Bithynia because he needed him to connect with Luke. And he also needed him, he got some more Bible for the dude to write. And so he's going to send him to Macedonia. One other thing about this verse that I love. You see that word after Macedonia, it says concluding. Concluding. That word concluding in Greek, I don't even know how to say it. It's symbabazo. Sounds like a clown to me, but 
what it means literally is to put the pieces of the puzzle together. That's what it means. To put the puzzle pieces together. So what Luke is saying here is, Paul wanted to go to Asia. The Holy Spirit forbade him. Then Paul wanted to go to this other place, and and the Spirit of Jesus said no. And then we connected in Troas, and then he had this dream. And as we sat down and we put all the pieces of the puzzle together, that's when God's will became clear to us. It was time to go to Macedonia. You see, I don't know if you've been there or not, but the times where you've been praying to God and praying to God and praying to God, and He answers no. I think a part of what the Holy Spirit wants us to learn from this text is that oftentimes God's no yesterday is His go for today. That when He tells you no to this situation, and you're frustrated, and I understand your frustration, a part of it is because you just don't see the whole picture the way He sees the whole picture. That he is the master and he does have a plan. And him saying no now is to prepare you for a go later. And there were so many things that hinged on Paul's obedience here. Even though what he was praying for looked like a good thing. And yet God said no. And so in obedience he just goes where God tells him to go. Sometimes God's no is just preparation for a future go. There's a, um, <clears throat> there's a very successful pastor in Anderson, South Carolina. He planted a church about 10 years ago. His name's Perry Noble. And he talks like I do from South Carolina, so I like to listen to him, you know, because it sounds super godly. Isn't this a godly accent? And so I love to listen to him. <laughs> and uh, one of the things he says, he, he's a big old church, planted 10 years ago, I don't know, 20,000 people, 10 campuses. It's crazy. It's awesome. God's blessing him like crazy. And so now he preaches at like pastor's conferences. And one of the things I heard him say one time at a, at a pastor's conference is he said, leadership is as easy as listening to God. And, and I'm like a leadership junkie. I, I just read a lot of leadership stuff, want to be a great leader. And I remember when I heard that, I wrote it down. Oh, my goodness, man. I did the, the white Christian amen, which is a move, right? Mm, I wrote it down. Leadership is as easy as listening to God. Man, that is good stuff thought about it, thought about it. And I thought even, even today, since we're talking about obedience, I kind of twisted it a little bit, but obedience is as easy as listening to God and doing what he says. Man, that'll preach, won't it? You know what the problem is there? Sometimes listening to God's not easy. Is it? Now, there are some occasions in the scripture where God's, God's word to us is so compellingly clear. Like if you want to know what God's saying about sexual immorality, flee, pretty clear. Just a one-word sentence right there. But then there's other times in our world when you're trying to make a decision, when you're trying to put the puzzle pieces together, and I don't know about you, but have you ever prayed and it's hard to hear the voice of God? Especially, especially when it's things like, God, do I go to this school or do I go to that school? Do I take that promotion or not? Do I take that job or this job? What, do I move into this neighborhood or that neighborhood? And then you pray, dear God, please lead me. And all I can hear is Perry Noble. Leadership's as easy as listening to God. I'm like, whoa, he ain't talking to me right now. What do you do? So what do you do when you're praying like crazy and trying to figure out what's God's plan for my life? And then to make it worse, the Bible even says sometimes it's hard to understand God. Look at Romans 11, 33 to 34. This is what the Bible says about listening to God. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? <laughs> the Bible wants us to know who has known the mind of God. You think you can figure out what God's thinking right now? Good luck with that. Paul wrote that in Romans. So then, when we're trying to figure out God's plan for our life, you do, especially if you're a leader like me, you do what I do. I mean, I'm type A. I like to have a plan. I like to have a strategy with tactics and measurable goals. Amen? All the CEOs are like, come on, preach it, baby. All right, that's what I like. And I get Pastor Ryan at the whiteboard, and we go, here's where we're going. Here's how we're going to do it. Here's who's going to do it, and here's when we're going to get there. And we come up with a plan. And then sometimes the Bible says things like this in Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man. Amen, there is. But its end is the way to death. Uh-oh. That sometimes you come up with a great plan, but it doesn't work out the way you plan. Has any of you, have you ever been there? Right? Remember in like 06 when you were investing in that real estate? Boy, that was a good plan, wasn't it? Hear that nervous laughter? <laughs> That's not funny. All right, I know. I know. We just sold one, okay? So, so then what do you do? I mean, if it's hard to hear the voice of God or understand exactly what he's thinking, <clears throat> and if there's, you know, sometimes your plans seem right to you, but they lead to death, then what do you do? Well, you go to one of your friends, especially one of them that seems kind of spiritual, you know, reads a little chicken soup for the soul and does devotions and things. You go, well, what should I do? And they say things, especially if they love Jesus and they love you, they'll say something like, well, you got to listen to your heart. How many of you have ever been told by a dear Christian friend to listen to your heart? Anybody? Come on, raise them, huh? Yeah, most of us in here. Well, here's what Jesus says about your heart. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. So I am going to suggest that you probably shouldn't listen to your heart because you got a heart problem. It's wretched and it's black, right? Ever heard that before? It's like you got a GPS. Your internal GPS is malfunctioning. You know why? Because it will often and always really just lead you back to you. That's why you have to be careful of listening to your heart because it's full of filth. You remember when... Um, Remember when our iPhones were updated and they changed and they were going to update the map? Remember that? And everything was wrong? I was trying to go to the, to the jail to visit somebody in jail. And uh, by the way, did you know the jail in Jacksonville is on Liberty Street? That just seems mean, doesn't it? It just seems like a cruel joke to the men in jail there. <clears throat> and so I put in the address and, and I'm listening to my phone. And you just, you know, it's just recalculating, recalculating. And then I get to the place, and it's just an empty field. I go, that can't be right. And then I plug in the same address, and I'm 11 miles away. I'm like, what happened? Well, there's some, there was something wrong. The GPS was off. I'm just telling you, your internal GPS is off because it wants to make you king of you, you lord of you. That's why you have to be so careful about um, just evaluating your current circumstances and basing whether you believe God loves you or not on your current circumstances. Or evaluating God's will for your life based on your circumstances. Because if you become the arbiter of your circumstances, it always works out for you. You'll sit at the red light in your old dilapidated car and say, Dear God, if you would like for me to have a new car, then give me a sign, like maybe a green light. <gasps> there it is, God. Oh, God bumps. And then you're at the dealership doing what you wanted to do for you anyway. So you might not want to follow your heart. So what do you do? So you pray, right? You pray. There's a problem with prayer. 
Now, hold on, I'm pro-prayer, all right? Don't, don't freak out yet. The problem with prayer is when we go to God to tell God what he needs to do, as opposed to coming to God saying, not my will, but thy will be done. And there are times that we can turn prayer into a Christian form of idolatry. And that thing that we want and need becomes more important than the one we're praying to. And it is idolatry. And we can go to God and say, God, this is what you have to do. You owe me. Look, I've been to church. I've been giving. I've been tithing. I've been good. You owe me health and wealth and happiness. And you owe me all of these things. And, and you wouldn't pray that way, but well, let's look at this. Matthew chapter 16. It's one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. Matthew 16 is where the upon this rock phrase comes from. In Matthew 16, Jesus gets the disciples in Caesarea Philippi, gathers them up and says, who do people say that I am? And they say all kind of stuff. And he says, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, upon this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Woohoo! And then, right after that, he begins to describe to them how this ecclesia, this movement, this church, what it's going to be all about. And Jesus begins to describe to Peter that he has to suffer and die on a cross and then be resurrected from the grave. And then here's what Peter does. Matthew 16, 22. And Peter took him, that's Jesus. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Think about that. Jesus is describing the cross, the crucifixion. And Peter says, Jesus, get over here. Can I talk to you for a minute? Excuse me, John. Everybody else, we'll be back. And he's bringing Jesus aside. He's like, we need to talk, bro. You ain't going to die. Are you, you just made me the Pope, okay? We got thousands showing up for the loaves and the bread, and we've got walking on water and water to wine, and, man, we're getting kind of popular. This thing is taking off. Jesus, that's a dumb plan. You have a dumb plan. Look what he says. Far be it from you, Lord. I don't think you can, those, that's like an oxymoron. Far be it from you. Lord, if you're saying far be it from you, then he ain't your Lord. So far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So he's bringing him aside. He's saying, Jesus, get over here. That is a dumb plan. Would you listen to my plan? All right, here's a better plan than your plan, Jesus. Now, if you're talking to Jesus in that prayer, and he's talking to Jesus. Now, we would never pray that way. I, don't, I hope not. I don't think you would. I think you're, you're Southern enough to not go, Jesus, get down here right now. I got to talk to you about something. <laughs> This is not a good plan. Can I just tell you what we need to do, what you need to do? I've figured it out. Can you just get on board with me? And the thing is, Peter thinks he's got a good plan. And sometimes when you pray and you get that no, you really think you've got a good plan. You're not praying selfishly where you are, but you don't think you are. But you, you've, you're praying for what you think are good things. And you're praying, Lord, I've got this whole thing figured out, God. I just, can you give me a job? God, I need a job. And I don't understand, why don't you just do something about my job situation? I love you. I'm faithful. I pray. I'm just asking for a job. That's not even like a real miracle. My brother-in-law's got a job, and he's an idiot. And if he's got a job, and he don't ever go to church. I heard an amen back here. All right, I hope your brother-in-law ain't here. <laughs> give me a job. I don't understand, God. Some of you are praying, dear Lord, I'm just praying for companionship. I'm not even asking for a whole husband, just a date, just a date. I read Proverbs 31. I'm ready to implement it all. Can you just give me a godly man? I'll even take a Christian boy. I don't care. Just bring me something. <laughs> My sister's married and she's crazy. How in the world? And essentially what we're saying is, Lord, if you'll just get on board with me 
and say yes to all my prayer because I really think that when it's all said and done, it's not even a big miracle. I'm not asking for like a parting of the Red Sea where like the lights in heaven dim down for a minute. I'm saying this isn't even that hard. You can do it without even, without even blinking, man. It's to be easy. And at the end of it, once you see that you give me a job, you get like a 10% kickback anyway. I've got you in mind. And once you do this, you're going to circle back around to me and you're going to say, thank you. That's such a better plan than the plan I had. Now, we would never say that, but it's kind of sometimes how we pray. Except the way it comes out from us is, is, God, why don't you do something about that? As if he doesn't know what he's doing. God, if you're all loving, if you can, then why don't you? And you know what we're saying? Jesus, get over here. Let me rebuke you for a minute. You know how Jesus responds to this, to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Think about Peter. No, 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 no. Uh, Rocky. <laughs> I'm the Pope. I am not Satan. Peter's like, look. Or Jesus says to him, if you're trying to keep me from going to the cross, you are not on my team. You see, we love some Jeremiah 29, 11. If you've been a Christian for a minute, you know that verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Man, it belongs on a coffee cup, don't it? And you just put that up. It's going to be a good day. See right there, Jeremiah 29, 11. But we like to kind of skip over the first part and just get to the second part about the not to harm and the hope and the future. And we're like, come on, give me some of that. But, but we skip the first part. God speaking through Jeremiah says, for I know the plans I have for you. It means you might not know the plan. And we love to misquote some Bible. And we'll come to the Lord with, dear God, I know the plans you ought to have for me, declares me. <laughs> and it's a job and it's a date and it's a raise. I got it all mapped out. So what do you do when God says no? What do you do when God says no? When you're praying for those things that, that on the surface, I mean, they look like good things. Taking the word to Asia is a good thing. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. A part of what I want you to try to understand today is that there is a master, it's not you. He does have a plan. He's a good dad, and he wants good things for his kids. And so he may be saying no to you right now, and you need to trust him. It takes no trust when you always get a yes. Trust is developed when you don't get what you want. That's when you get to decide if you're going to trust and lean in, or you're going to lean back like, "Uh uh-uh. Trust isn't developed until you don't get what you want. It's like, I know you think your dog loves you. Your dog don't love you. Your dog loves bacon treats that you give him. They're just responding. If I took your dog and said, come to my house, and I gave him bacon, guess what? They love me too. So that is not how we're just supposed to respond to God when we get what we want. But God would want us to trust in the Lord with all of your heart, lean not on your own understanding. That means that sometimes he's going to give you a no, and you don't understand. It just doesn't make sense in your economy. And in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. There's a real-life illustration of this on our staff. A few weeks ago, I told you about Craig and Stacy Brown. The week that we were talking about adoption, about how God has adopted us into his family, chosen us and adopted us into his family. And we talked about adoption and shared with you Stacy and, and Craig's story. And think about what their prayer life was like six or eight years ago when they're begging God. God, please give us a kid. God, we're praying for a child. 
And God, obviously you're going to say yes to us because we love you and are called according to your purpose. We love you, God. And then God says no. And, and, and if I'm in that moment, I'm like, Lord, I don't understand. That doesn't make any sense. Again, I'm not praying, praying for cash and prizes. I'm just praying for a child, praying for a kid. And I turn on the news and everybody else can have one. And they don't even deserve it. And it seems like the most undeserving moms can have the most of them. How is that possible? And I love you. And we'd raise this kid in the church. And we'd, we'd raise him in a clean house and a safe house. And with a mom and a dad that loves you and loves them. So God, in my understanding, this doesn't make any sense. And you know in that moment, there was heartbreak after heartbreak after heartbreak. And little did they know that God's no then was preparing them to create this, this environment where God would plant the seed for adoption and they adopt Parker Brown and then even a bigger seed to, for orphan care ministry in our church. And so now Stacy Brown is leading a charge in our church where we will build orphanages around the world and we will adopt children from around the world and we will help take care of orphans all around the world. And so one person's no six or eight years ago turns into hundreds of children's yes now. And you've just got to understand that you've got to trust in the Lord with all your heart. And there will be times where it doesn't make any sense. So you don't lean on your own understanding. But you acknowledge Him in all your ways. You worship Him. You trust Him. Even though it hurts, you lean into Him. And He will direct your paths. You see, because some of you right now are in a season of no. And you don't understand and you're beginning to look around and be like, well, all right, God, if you really did love me, then why would you do something about this? And what you don't know is that your heavenly father is. He is. He is. And you can't just look at your immediate circumstances and determine whether he loves you or not. He loves you more than you could ever understand, and he demonstrated it by sending his very own son. And some of you, you feel like your life is completely out of control completely out of control, barreling out of control. And you're like, God, if you're there, help. And he may say no because he's got a bigger plan for you. About uh, well, several years ago, um, when we were a service at Beach, we were doing a series called Inked uh, about tattoos, what the Bible said about tattoos. And, and I got a tattoo, and part of that was run off all the religious people, so it'd kind of just be us. And, uh, you know, it was kind of a plan. <clears throat> so here we are. And... Uh, and so I got a tattoo, and, and it's got Acts eleven twenty four 24 on it. Uh, and he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. And at the end of that service, I was saying that, that a great number would be just one more. And I would love for just one more person. I would spend my life for one more person to come to Christ. And I said, if you're ready to surrender your life to Jesus, just let it be known by raising your hand. There was a 15-year-old girl in the audience that day, in our church that day, and she raised her hand, surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. Her name was Mackenzie Wilson. Four weeks later, she was in the hospital with a brain disease, and I met her and her family, and she went on to be with the Lord. And you want to talk about getting a no. I mean, I was praying like, God, God, just, just heal her, and I've got it all figured out. All, I mean, your name will be glorified if you'll just answer my prayers. And she went on to be with him and his sovereignty, and God has used her story and life and legacy to lead hundreds and hundreds of people to himself. And one of the people that, um, that her life and her legacy and the Holy Spirit used that to impact is a friend of mine named Zach. And we want to share his story with you. So take just a minute and watch this story.
driving home on November 15th, 2010 on JTV. And uh, I was driving along and I went to use the brake on my car. And as soon as I hit the brake, it went straight to the floor. After that, I, I went to press the accelerator just to see if that would help to fix it. And as soon as I pressed the accelerator, that went to the floor also. And at that point, I knew that something was up as the accelerator was stuck on the floor and I couldn't brake. The speedometer was going faster and faster. And that's when I called my mom. I called 911 and had them on the line because I didn't know what the outcome was going to be. And for five minutes and 35 seconds, Zach and I spoke on the phone as we tried to find a way to stop the truck or to get the truck out of gear. I got to Hodges and I realized that there was probably no way that I was going to stop this car. So I started to think about how I was actually going to get out of this. As he came to the end of JTB, um, he was coming off the highway onto A1A and he said, Mom, there's traffic ahead of me. I have to do something now and he did. I got to the bottom of the bridge and I was probably going 90 miles an hour and I, I was trying to avoid cars as it was rush hour traffic and I came to the edge of JTB at that last little hump before you get off onto A1A um, and I saw brake lights and I saw cars in front of me and I just said to my mom, Mom, I gotta crash the car and I took the wheel, I dropped my phone, I took the wheel as hard as I could and I turned it uh, to the right. I turned off and, and I flipped once, twice, three times and my car actually landed right here with um, upside down in these bushes and, uh, and that's where, uh, I mean it all happened right here. My parents got to the hospital. They had told me that the paramedics told them at the scene that I, I, I had probably broken both of my arms, both of my legs, had internal injuries, had broken my pelvis, and had possibly injured my neck. I got to the hospital and they told me that the only thing was wrong with me was my, I had a concussion and I had some bruising on my shoulder. I, I wanted to go see where it had actually happened and I came, I came here um, just to see it. I got to the scene and I was I was walking around looking at the different places that the car had actually hit and slid and just stopped. And I came over to where the car had stopped and, and I was looking around in the debris and on the ground there was one of the cards that you get when you buy a Mackenzie Wilson cross. And it, it just, it got to me. I, I, I couldn't explain how it was still there after they had to drag my car away with a tow truck and after an entire night. but. It was still there, and I knew that it was there for a reason. Mackenzie and I were friends in high school. Um, she was a cheerleader. I was on the football team. I was actually injured that year, so I, I had a chance to, to get to know her a lot, and um, I became quite close with her. I, I, I drove her home sometimes. I, uh, I played tennis with her. I went to the gym with her. We just we had become really close that um, that year, and. And her passing was was so hard on me, and and I became so close with the Wilsons after that, and and I, I really think that that she was watching over me when the whole thing happened. God had his hand with Zach that night, and he was helping to guide and protect him and help guide me um, in what could have been a very tragic night. And I since then have 
come to realize that regardless of the trials that I may be facing in life, that God is there to protect me and watch over me, and I have a certain peace about myself knowing that that's the truth. Well, almost dying isn't the best thing. I, I think I know that it was a blessing in disguise, and, and I know that the crash is actually what brought me, brought me to Jesus and brought me to Christ. Romans 8.28 says this, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Imagine being Zach's mom on the phone for five minutes and 35 seconds. And you know she's praying like crazy. Dear God, if you're there, just fix the brake. Fix the brake. Fix the car. God, please make the brake work. And God's going, no. No. Because he had a bigger plan. And his no was I'm going to crash the car and I'm going to change the trajectory of Zach and actually all the White Calls direction forever and ever for all eternity and my no in the first 535 is actually going to be the yes for eternity and I'm going to preserve his life and, and he, he I don't even know where he was going he was going somewhere but he didn't end up there he ended up at 1122 and he surrendered his life to the Lordship of Christ and the video from his mom was her testimony because she got baptized on June 2nd and so God's no to that five minute long prayer became a yes that changed things for eternity it was a master plan a master plan and so we don't always know why he's saying no right now imagine the disciples at Calvary the day Christ is being crucified you don't think they were praying to the Father, God, save your son, save him. Save him, get him off the cross, don't let him die. And God doesn't answer their prayer. Or how about Jesus himself going, he's in the garden of Gethsemane. He's like, dear God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Not my will, but your will be done. And God says, I'm not going to answer that prayer because I've got a plan and what you see is a no in this moment is actually the plan of salvation for all of us to have the ability to be reconciled to a heavenly father the Bible says that yea though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death if you're in a season of no right now I'm not saying the sermon makes you not be sad and makes your heart feel any better But what I would encourage you to do is lean not on yourself, lean not on your own understanding, but lean into Him. Lean into Him. And yea, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil for His rod and His staff. They comfort you. That word comfort in Hebrew means to cry with those who cry or to mourn with those who mourn. And that you can trust Him. Why? Because He demonstrated His love for us in this, that while we were yet still sinners, before any of us ever did anything to deserve anything good from God, even when we were enemies from God, he, he demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us on the cross. And if we were standing on that hill in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, we would have thought, this is out of control. God, why don't you do something about that? And he said, I am. I am. I'm saving the world. And that is the master plan. Would you please stand and pray with me? Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you because you first loved us. God, we thank you, even though it doesn't feel so good to say this, Lord. We thank you when you answer no out of your mercy and your sovereignty. Even if we, on this side of eternity, don't get to see how the plan comes together, God, we thank you. That right now we see, but through a glass dimly, but one day we will 
see and know in full. And God, thank you that you did not answer the prayers of the disciples in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And that your son, your only begotten son, suffered and died and received the full wrath that we deserve so that we could receive reconciliation with you. Holy Spirit, would you comfort, would you be with, would you move in, would you give a peace that transcends understanding to the men and the women and the students right now that are praying with everything they're made of, good prayers, and your answer to them is, I love you, no. And God, would you help them to trust in you? God, would you strengthen their faith? Would you help us all to see the the no's through the light of the cross? We pray it in Jesus' name. Hey, we respond to the gospel here. God initiates, we respond. We respond by worshiping Him all together in one voice.